the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello and welcome to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast, where people who have needed blood thank the donors who have saved, prolonged or improved their lives. My name is Kate Fisher. I'm the creator of Milkshakes for Mali, an award-winning Australian storyteller and a changemaker. I'm on a mission to end the persistent critical blood shortages in Australia, inspired by our seven-year-old daughter, Mali, who started receiving life-saving blood products when she was just three. Mali will be dependent on blood donors for the rest of her life. As for her, blood products are life-saving when she relapses and life-preserving for every infusion in between. This podcast is a creative solution to a social problem, which is persistent critical blood shortages in Australia, as not enough people donate blood. One in three Australians will need blood in their lifetime and yet only about one in 30 eligible Australians donate. It's my mission to change that while thanking as many blood donors as I can along the way. And my recently announced book will be my next tool to remind people of the importance of blood donation. I've been really overwhelmed by the response this week to the announcement that this book will be on shelves before Christmas. And I've had some amazing people reach out um, to help promote the book This is something that I absolutely welcome. So if you are interested um, in being a part of it, if you have got a small business that would like to sell them, an independent bookshop, um, if you make hampers, um, any of those types of things, please get in contact with me. I've had some really interesting and creative solutions um, suggested to me this week. And I just love the fact that this is another opportunity for this community to band together and to all support the common goal of increasing blood donations in Australia. I think it's really exciting as well, because obviously selling the book is great (laughs) and it would be great. But what I love is that when people share information about the Milkshakes Mali podcast or book, and whether this is, you know, sharing one of my social media posts or popping something in one of your group chats, even just when you're chatting to family and friends, This is blood donation advocacy in action. And the people that see this messaging may never buy a book or listen to a podcast episode of mine, but it might just be the reminder that they need to book an appointment to donate um, for the first time or maybe after a break from donating for a little while. Um, And of course, this is particularly important at Christmas time when so many people are traveling um, or just don't make the appointments that they normally make. So um, Christmas time is such an important time to make sure that you have got your blood donation appointments booked in advance, lock it in your Christmas calendar um, and do something to make yourself feel great between Christmas and New Year. I have spent the last few weeks buried deep in the final chapters of this book manuscript and I've gone back and I've listened to nearly every interview that I've ever done for the Milkshakes for Mali project. Um, Obviously not all of the interviews that I conduct make it to be podcast episodes Um, and often it's just email chats with people as well that don't progress to a recording but it's been so 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 deeply humbling to be reminded of the incredible privilege that it is to be trusted with these people's stories 
Um, often when people talk to me, they're reliving some of the most vulnerable and most painful moments of their lives. So to come on this podcast, to thank the blood donors who made treatment possible, either for them or for someone that they love, and to encourage people to donate um, in the future. It's just such a great privilege. Um, and today's guest is no exception. Today's episode recognises September as Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and Anne Middlestadt joins me to share the story of her precious daughter, Missy, who passed away at the age of 13 after a diagnosis of her third type of cancer in four years. Don't let that description put you off this episode, though. It is filled with also a lot of sadness, but just so much joy and love and just radiates it. And it was impossible not to feel warm and fuzzy, even though we were talking about some of the most difficult days of her entire life. Since Missy's passing, Anne has dedicated her life to empowering paediatric cancer patients and their families on their journey. And as part of this work, of course, is through her incredible blood donation advocacy that she does for the Lifeblood team called Missy's Donors. Anne joined me for this interview with her stuffed toy support animal under her arm. And anyone who has followed Missy's Donors would be very familiar with Lammy. And she also had to leave midway through the interview to go and feed uh, the huge flock of guinea fowl who kept making so much noise outside. You might hear them in little parts of this interview. Um, they were interrupting us. And of course, she didn't just put me on mute. She took her laptop outside with our Zoom call still running so that I could meet the animals on their property and get a glimpse of the paradise that they live in Um on the Atherton Table lands in far north Queensland in a little place called Melanda. I share these snippets of Anne to remind anyone listening that it could be any of us who notice some abnormal bruising, persistent fatigue, some night sweats, a bleeding nose, or an illness that we feel our kid just can't shake, and this could be at any time. And this could be the beginning of every parent's worst nightmare, and the beginning of their childhood cancer journey. I know what it's like to be a parent with a child who is dependent on blood products, and there is nothing more terrifying than being worried um, that not enough people will donate in the lead up to your child's treatment day. Ange oozes love for Missy and so much gratitude for every extra minute that Australian blood donors gifted them together. I admire and respect this woman so much, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Ange. So today I welcome the incredible Ange to the Milkshakes for Mali podcast and community. And we also have Lammy that has joined us as well today um, in memory of beautiful Missy. So thank you so much for joining oh. us on the podcast today, Ange. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So throughout Missy's journey, she had over 200 blood transfusions. Um, and I've just picked up a quote from some media that you had previously done about your mission and what you do. And it says, with blood becoming harder and harder to access, and started Missy's Donors, which encourages people to donate blood to people like her daughter. 
could our missions be any more aligned in what we do? (laughs) Before we go deep on all the incredible things that you are doing, I want you to tell me about Missy separate to her being unwell and all of the treatment and all of the things. Pre this, tell me about your beautiful girl. I'm so glad you've asked because everything is all about her being unwell. So Missy was just one of those people who lent into life. She loved learning. She was a science geek. She just loved doing things. She had several Instagram pages. Missy, she had a food thing where she'd cook and photograph that. And she was getting into theatrical makeup where she could make things look like you've been cut with a saw or stitches. You know, she, she, she just loved life. She loved learning. She loved people. Um, she'd always wanted to be a psychologist, <laughs> a psychiatrist. She loved working people out. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, what? What was she like when she was little? She was the typical youngest child. Very, <laughs> very, you know, um, yeah, she would she learned to read at three with her sister who was two years older than her in prep. She would read the books, the prep books, you know, and she was always just trying to keep up with her sisters and just couldn't wait to get to school. And she loved school because she loved learning. And it was interesting because when she was unwell, all she wanted to do was get back to school and all kids at school wanted to do was get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other yeah, side of the coin, well. isn't it? So was yes. that tricky in terms of her um, as she got older, wanting to know more about her conditions? Do you think that was a blessing or a curse with her, with I her think it was, knowledge? Oh, it was most definitely a blessing. Yeah. Missy took ownership of her treatment like you wouldn't believe and she was part of the reason why we coped so well. Mm-hmm. And she, as you know, illnesses, profound illnesses like cancer, rob a child of their innocence. So she was nine when she was first diagnosed. So by the time she was 11, she was like a 25-year-old girl. She made better, better decisions than I did. Like she was worldly. She was thoughtful. She would always want to know what was going on with her treatment. And our amazing Dr. Chris Fraser would talk directly to her. Mm. He would say, Missy, you know, this is what's happening. And then we'd discuss and she'd always ask him profoundly interesting questions. And he loved that. Yeah, yeah. he loved because she was thinking all the time. What an incredible kid. She's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will draw our listeners back to an episode that we put out earlier in the season um, with Siobhan from My Pixie Friends. And she is a 14-year-old girl. Um, she's in Brisbane. She's got her own business. And part of that business is um, documenting her own medical journey and giving children and families age-appropriate tools to be able to do the same thing yeah, in an age-appropriate way, um, right from little, little kids in ways yes. that they can document, they can ask questions, they can draw about how they're feeling all of those types of things. So um, which to the child-centered player therapist in me just makes my heart sing because that is so much of the work that I do is working um, with children and their families who have experienced medical trauma and giving them ways to be able to be the center of their own care. Um, Before we get into Missy's story and what she went through, um, can you tell me about the compendium that you created to help document your medical journey um, and for families to be able to use with children who have been unwell? 
Um, well, I noticed because we were in hospital from the point of diagnosis, we were in for nearly four months solid because mm -hmm. Missy was so unwell and had so many complications. So I just, and we were often moved around a lot. Yeah. And I am a creative human. I'm a florist by trade. My husband's a landscaper. I do a lot of gardening and things like that um, and design. So going into the complex world of medical um, pediatric oncology treatment, I just felt so lost. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a very hardworking can-do person. So sitting still <laughs> in my room was really hard. I found that very hard. And I just noticed a gap in the help that was being provided by all the major charities. And I thought, and it was one morning when we were asked at 2 a.m. to move rooms, and I just couldn't believe it. I was profoundly stunned. I thought, really? Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, there's some poor little darling down in emergency that's sicker than us, and they mm -hmm. needed our single room. So, And for Missy, they'd just unplug her bed, move her. She'd wake up in a different room. But me, I had to collect all, you know, because we were there for so long. You just end up with so much stuff, and you'd lose things. Things get... Mm -hmm you know, stuck down the side of the mattress or they just get lost and then you go to help yourself mm. and you can't you can't find all the information that you need and you ask the nurse, she's busy, they're on 12-hour shifts, the shift changes, she's gone, you've got to re-ask someone. So I just found that being able to store and collate gave me a job, gave me something mm -hmm. to do. I could methodically go through and collate all the information I was giving. And so when I had a time where I was able to absorb information, I could go back and look and help myself. And it actually, the compendium became more helpful for Missy. She loved going back and looking at things. And because we re record her blood detail, her blood numbers, every single test, so we could, you know, work out how she was feeling compared to her blood results. Um, so just having all that stuff together, and it's got a zip. You can even just shove it in and mm -hmm. zip it up and you won't lose it. And then when you've got time, mm -hmm. maybe you're back at your home and you've got a moment, you know, you can go back and look at that information. And it's also very handy for other people in your life because it's often the mum or that primary carer that has all the knowledge mm -hmm. and everyone else just sort of fumbles around. And so if, if a situation came, I always say, if you have to go to an ambulance, take it with you in the ambulance. Because when we would arrive at emergency, they all knew us. They go, Ange, where's your compendium? Mm. And I'd open it up to all the Missy's medications pages, what she's on right now, where she's at. And that just made our journey through that section. Anyone that's been through childhood um, cancer treatment knows that the minute you get a temperature, you've got to go to emergency. Yep. Sometimes you're there for like six or seven hours before you mm. get up. On. So to have all that information done ready in a way they can they can read it and relate and get all the information quickly too mm. um, is such an advantage. Mm. So this would have been incredibly useful for our family had I known about it at the time um we previously lived in Canberra and there's no pediatric intensive care unit in Canberra it's so like, uh, and you don't know this until you need it like you would never like how would you know um oh, no. and we um were consistently airlifted to Sydney for pediatric intensive care for Marley oh, when she wow. Status Imagine the costs in that alone. Look, the amount of airlifts that she had, we probably could have funded. You would have funded a ward yourselves. <laughs> but it was so tricky because it was across two different states' health systems with no information sharing. So wow. I became that conduit of information. And when you've got a child, you know it is so critically unwell. Those decisions that you make can be life-preserving. And I got asked to make so many decisions that I shouldn't have been. 
based yeah. on her medical history because I yes. was the expert in her. Yes, yes. And I remember the sheer relief. We ended up moving to the Sunshine Coast. So we had a local pediatric intensive care unit and we have still lots of our specialist appointments down in Brisbane. And getting down to Brisbane and having my folder of all of her blood test results from the Sunshine yeah. Coast University Hospital from the week before and feeling like I had to hand it over. And they were like, oh, no, it's all on the computer here. Like our systems are linked. And it just hadn't occurred to me that because it was within the state, same state health system, they would have the same information. And I remember just sitting in the car and sobbing with relief oh. that I didn't have to carry all of that responsibility and all of that information. But I didn't have an incredible tool like your compendium to be able to do it. <laughs> So I, yeah, I find that fascinating and I will draw attention to the Canberra families that I know still consistently have to go to Sydney for treatment um, so that they can have a look at what you Well, interestingly, we are moving towards um, providing them nationally in 2024. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, every paediatric cancer ward. And then once we get through the cancer wards, I'll start looking at other areas, other families that need them. You know, kids that lose limbs or have a organ transplant they get nothing yeah cancer patients are so fortunate there's so much help there for us there's yeah. so much so many other families that just get very little help and funding so they're next on my radar yeah yeah and that you know that's been so much of the advocacy work that I've done too you know you have a child who has a disease or a rare condition that we went without an actual diagnosis for such a long time because it didn't fit into any box. So there is that's hard. Those Not organizations that pick you up and wrap you up. And um, so, yeah, I just tried to start that conversation as you have as much as well. Yeah. Advocacy work. Um, let's have a little chat about Missy's journey. Um, Lammy, who you have got there with you, is the representation of 1,460 days of treatment for Missy, yeah. one excruciating bone marrow transplant, three different cancers and 13 forever. Yeah. Tell me. It's pretty savage, that. isn't it? <laughs> it is. But and, it's the reality, it is the reality of so many people's lives. And, you yes. know, I was looking through her story and without you know she had over 200 blood transfusions without the first second or third one she wouldn't have had the extra time with you guys that she had and we try to frame the blood donation advocacy work that we do is not just saving lives but preserving and prolonging lives and not just being about the life of the person that you save but also about keeping families together and giving families extra time. So those transfusions yeah. that she received were as much about her big sister and her mum and her family and friends and her best friend Flynn and her community as it was about giving you guys hope and giving her treatment options and giving her more time. Um, tell me about when you first realised that she was unwell um, and something wasn't quite right. Yeah, she was just tired and didn't want to go to school. And that was a big red flag for me. Um, and she just had bruising. We did, we thought, honestly thought she had um, celiac or something. She was very, her stomach, she always had lower stomach issues throughout the whole three years. Lots of 
feeling unwell in her lower abdomen. So we just took her to the doctor and the minute her GP saw a little patch of petechiae on her arm, which is little tiny blood vessels that burst and it looks like someone's just dotted a little area with a fine tip red pen. Mm. The minute she saw that, she just, I, I, in hindsight now, I, re, I remember, I realised that she knew it was probably cancer and we had a blood test at nine o'clock in the morning and then Friday morning and then four o'clock in the afternoon, we got that dreaded phone call from our GP who was crying because we come from a very small town and her three sons were in my three daughters' classes at school oh asking us to come in. Um, I wasn't surprised, to be honest, that she had cancer. There was so much cancer in our family. I've lost 10 direct family members to cancer. Mm-hmm. and when she, But when she was diagnosed, um, you know, we were at the Queensland Children's Hospital the next day by 1 p.m. Saturday afternoon, we were walking into the oncology ward at the Queensland Children's Hospital for a year or in for four months solid and then because generally a child will get their port or their central line surgically inserted and then a couple of days later they'll leave and then start coming back for treatment but from the get-go Missy just suffered profound life-threatening illnesses one after the other after the other and um, that's when the blood products really shone through and literally I have literally seen I say this four times I've seen them literally save her life other than the times when they just kept her strong enough to keep fighting and withstanding the toxic nature of chemotherapy treatment. So mm. for Marley, we say that her blood products are life-saving when she relapses and life-preserving. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and as a mum, it's amazing watching those blood products go into your child and you can literally see the difference like minute by yes. minute as yes, them back to life. Yes. Um, and so I wish that somehow we could capture that so that our blood donors could see that impact that they literally have, like within moments of their, yes. their products going into people to keep them alive. Yes. So where are you guys living when she was first diagnosed? Uh, we live up in the Atherton Tablelands up in far north Queensland. We're in a small mm-hmm. town called Melanda. We have probably 5,000 people mm-hmm. um, spread out over a big area. Would you believe uh, I've been to Melanda? You? Yeah, oh, seriously, it's beautiful. How long ago? It's it gorgeous. is. It's like, it's like a tropical Tasmania. It's, yeah. Yeah, always green. We get lots of rain. We're up above Tully and Innisfail, up mm. on the, so it's very, very, it's very wet, but that's yeah. great because I love yeah. gardening. Beautiful. Mm. It's just mm. gorgeous. Just, it yeah, is. It's a different part of the world. It just feels so different to anywhere that I haven't yeah we have an amazing community spirit and like we have tree kangaroos and platypus on our property so it's it's just it really is amazing just amazing we'll have to bring the kids to visit next time. oh come and visit (laughs) um it's difficult to be able to convey to our listeners what it's like to be the parent of a child with complex and critical medical needs um that one day you're living your life you're going to school you're worried about whether you've got bread to make sandwiches for lunches the next day whether you you know the kids have got the hat and the school bag you know have they done their project I've forgotten to make them a dentist appointment um you know you've got someone down the road that's annoying you like all of the things that you're worried about and then you get that phone call 
and you just your life just completely changes you just get sucked into this completely different vortex you walk through that front door and into a children's hospital and we did the same we did months at a time in children's hospitals and Mm. just it's like just walking into a parallel universe like how different that world yeah um and you can't really explain it to anyone you can't you can't explain that to anyone until you experience it no Mm. um I got people find this completely ridiculous but I went deep into true crime podcasts while I was living on a neurology ward which bordered the oncology ward at the Sydney Children's Hospital in Randwick and it was just I felt it was so difficult to talk to family and friends about what was happening in their lives because they didn't want to tell me what was happening in theirs because compared to what was happening in ours. It was I know. So, so I think it's saving you. Yeah. I couldn't watch yeah. mainstream media because it all just was just seemed ridiculous and so incongruent with my world. And the only way that I could sort of tap out at night time for a little while was to listen to true crime podcasts that was so removed from any the reality that I wanted to be a part of, the reality that I was living in, like it was just such a different world to where yeah. I was living. Yeah. Um, and that's the only way that I've been able to explain to people that it just, it's so out of character for me to go deep on something like that. But I just needed something to change the world that I was in just for a couple of hours to give yeah. my brain a break. Yeah. Um, how did you stay connected with the rest of your family? Because Missy's not your only child. How no. did you maintain those connections during that time? I do feel for my husband who became a single self-employed dad with two teenage girls mm. at home, you know, and, and since losing Missy, we've struggled with the flow-on effect from those times. Mm-hmm. One of my, uh, my middle daughter, Freya, has struggled um, intensely with her mental health. She's just coming good now. Um, but that didn't come out till a year after we'd lost Missy. You know, we didn't realise she was masking and just trying to do her best because then they don't want to burden their parents because their parents have been through so much. And it's there's a whole cycle of, of horrible things that can happen to a family, whether the child survives or not. Um, and some of those things don't present till quite a while after, which is what happened with our family. So we were just sort of coming out of that profoundly deep grief and then we were sort of hit with this next um, challenge of our daughter's mental health um, so that was challenging too and my husband it's hard on relationships it's taken us it's been nearly three years since we've lost Missy it's still hard because men grieve differently and um, everyone grieves differently so you've just got to be resilient and patient and compassionate I think um, and just hang in there simple advice but you know keep going try and hold space for each other yeah 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 and there's no yeah there's there's no roadmap everyone does it differently no one is there one size fits all yeah you know it's hard so Um, people used to say to me all the time you know I don't know how you're doing this because I would be the one who was in Sydney in hospital with Marley and my husband would be in Canberra with our two older boys and we've brought this up through the podcast so many times and so much of the other advocacy work that we have done is that he was the one that became the single dad during the week yes. still going to work because bills still needed to be paid mortgage yes paid all of those things still needed to happen and he would yeah. jump in the car on a Friday afternoon after the boys finished school drive to Sydney 
Um, and we would briefly see each other on a Friday night. Um, I would get one night in a hotel over the weekend to spend time with our two older boys. Jeff would be in hospital with Marley. They would leave again Sunday night, drive back to Canberra and start the week all over again. And we did that for months and months. How and tiring. Months. That would have and been so tiring. I don't know how you're doing this. I'm like, I don't know how Jeff's doing it. Like, and I don't know how our boys are doing it. And there was so much about that family separation that's just so traumatic. And mm. even when I was present with our older children and wanting to spend time with them because I missed them so desperately through the week. And then as soon as I was away from that hospital room in Mali, I couldn't be fully present with no, them. No, your mind's back with Mali. And they knew that, right? Yeah. Like it was such a difficult yes. I don't know if I'll leave all of this in the podcast episode, but it was just such a difficult time that unless you've experienced it, it's so tricky to be my honest. eldest girls um commented that they would ask Missy to ask for everything because I always said yes to her. Yeah, yeah. No, I, no, I didn't. No. But, oh, wait, yes, I did. And that idea so. of, you know, she's your favourite child. We've had that come out so many times. And yes, I love all of our children equally. Yes. But we still don't know if we will have as much time with one of them. Yes, sibling. It's so hard for sibling. It's such an unmapped area. There's mm. such little help for them. It's so hard to help them. Yeah, it really yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. And I've um, built my child center play therapy practice around um, having a space um, for children who have experienced medical trauma to be able yep. to access that play therapy outside of a hospital setting, um, but also to work with siblings and families to be able to unpack some of that trauma um, because there's so much guilt associated with that with siblings who are like, I'm not the sick one, so why should I have to, you know, why do I get to complain? But then some of the things that our older boys saw with Marley having prolonged seizures and being put into helicopters and going in ambulances constantly and living in hospital and those things that they saw are not a normal childhood experience and no. they have the space to unpack that. Yes. Uh, yeah, so it's about creating those spaces to be able to support whole families rather than, you know, just That's the awesome. That's, um, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so your incredible community in Melanda have just wrapped themselves around you guys and still continue to do so. That small country town thing is just such a magical thing. Um, could you have comprehended when Missy was so unwell that that community would be so important for you in the future in this next chapter of your life? Yeah, no, not at all. I didn't realise. And it was hard for Missy and I being down there. My husband had to, you know, he was perpetually having the meals delivered and the fundraising events and having to go do all those things. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a little bit more difficult. I, I really struggled when we came home after finishing the first cancer treatment. I felt obliged, like I could never repay them. And I had to be reminded several times that people don't do things. And, of course, I know that now because it's how I feel. We don't do things to receive no. it back. We do it because we just want to give and we really, you know, want to help that family out. So navigating that was hard for me. I felt like I'd had to do everything for my community to try and give back in some way. Um, but that's not really how it is. If someone gives, it's because they want to give, not because they expect something back. Mm -hmm. So we have an amazing community. I could ask for volunteers today and I'd have 100 on my doorstep tomorrow. It's just incredible. Um, 
yeah, there's some really incredible people in the world and um, for some reason a lot of them live in Melanda. (laughs) You just draw them in like a magnet. Yeah, they're all moving up from Victoria. Yeah, we've had the same thing on the Sunshine Coast. But honestly, it it takes a special kind of person to be in that small town community as well. Like you really have to lean on each other and the resources that other people have and not having all of those services at your doorstep. You need to be able to other people in your community. I grew up small country town, New South Wales girl. So from that point of view, I understand you know that yes well I spoke with other parents at the hospital and they say oh no one does anything for me and I think wow imagine not having a community mm. some yeah. people have no one helping them mm. yeah you know? and that was yeah one of our biggest fears when we moved to Queensland was moving away from our incredibly tight-knit community and yes that we had um in Canberra but during COVID everyone just did everything online anyway like we're having this conversation right now so yeah yeah and those connections so Missy was nine when she was diagnosed. Mm. Is that correct? That's what was correct. the diagnosis? Um, ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. That's the most common and most treatable childhood leukemia out there. And I found myself living in a world saying, oh, thank goodness it's ALL, you know, because there's some nasty ones out there and there's a 95% success rate. And I, I honestly... Um, I don't know whether it's a blessing or a curse, but my ability to always look on the bright side and always find a silver lining because there was not, honestly, there was probably two times in the four years that I worried about Missy dying. Every single other day was all about, okay, so we just need to get through what we need to get through today. Then Missy and I made a decision. I remember early on in room 24, we made a decision a pact to just do everything that we were asked to do by the nurses and the doctors because this is, was our start date and that's our end date. We just need to keep chipping away till we get to the end date of our treatment because then we'll be done. So we tried just to be, you know, it's hard being those nurses looking after those sick kids with cancer. So we just tried to do everything we could to help them help us so that our journey wasn't so hard or any harder than it needed to be you know yeah and how incredible for her experience of that time in hospital then to with you and to have that positivity around um only recently we don't spend as much time in hospital now as we used to but Marley has started saying I wish we could have some of those nights in hospital that we used to have mummy yeah and it's which has just blown me away but that's the bits that she remembers like that you know I think about it as being a really traumatic time for her yes he doesn't remember it that way and how incredible that we can impact that experience for our children yeah isn't that amazing that she sees it like that that's great that I mean you know that's that's great that time with you I miss that I still now wish I find myself I catch myself wishing oh you know I just wish we were back still in treatment yeah. Just sitting there, even though it was horrible and we we're away from home, I just wish I was back in that room with her, yeah. chatting and talking about silly things and playing video games and doing craft and all the things we used to do together, just yeah. so I could be with her. Even if I knew that I was still going to lose her, I'd do it all again. <laughs> just to be with her. Um, it takes away all of that external noise. And it's the most pure and honest and authentic form of a relationship 
when you have sit in that vulnerability with somebody who you know is yes well in that space yes I get that about the relationship that you and Missy had in those hospital rooms in that time. Um, yeah, I'd become your best friend and I almost felt like she was a soulmate, you know, and almost felt like even though she was here only here for 13 years, she was sent to me yeah. so I could feel that profound sense of love from her. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, that was incredible. I get it. I get it. It's so hard to put words around it unless you've sat in those moments of vulnerability with yeah. child. Yeah. Um, so you got through your first lot of treatment. Did you go home in between before you had more complications? Uh, we, yeah, ALL treatment goes for about two and a half years and we went home after 12 months mm-hmm. and we are back every two weeks for three months and every month for the next three months and then she finally finished her treatment in December uh, 2018 and, of course, then six months later I was diagnosed with breast cancer and then, yeah, I've had three cancers. (laughs) I don't, I don't, um, I don't go on about my cancers much because not that they're not worth talking about, but I, all three of my cancers were found incredibly early, surgically removed with no further treatment needed. For Mm -hmm. some reason, my 13-year-old daughter experiences four years of pain and heartache and dies, and yet I have three cancers and they're all just cut out and I'm I'm left, you know, and I can't, not that I feel bad, but I because I haven't had any chemotherapy or radiation and my family can't have radiation because of the genetic gene we have, it removes that whole treatment option, but I just, I don't feel worthy of aligning myself with people that have had years of treatment. So you, Missy's rung the bell. She's finished the first round of treatment. Six weeks later, you're diagnosed. Yeah, six months later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was very early stages. They... They removed the breast cancer, clear margins, no cancer in any of my lymph nodes. And we discussed treatment. Um, I was going to have radiation and that would have fitted in before Missy needed to start at her bone marrow transplant. So she was diagnosed with myeloid dysplastic MDS six weeks after I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And myeloid dysplastic is an interesting one. Adults can live 10, 15 years in treatment, just getting treated for that. But with children, it can mutate into any number of other cancers. So it was paramount to get her into a bone marrow transplant ASAP. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's where we started down the bone marrow registry journey. And there wasn't a match in the world on the bone marrow world registry for Missy. So obviously, we were also at that time investigating her sisters. But that's when they found um, our incredibly rare and unfortunate cancer gene called Lee Fraumini. Lee Fraumini is a fault in our DNA. It's in the TP53 gene. It's a fault in that gene. And that gene's job is to recognize cancer cells and remove them from your body. And with Lee Fraumini people, that that um, gene is either faulty, doesn't work at all, at all different varying levels. It's a very European gene. Lots of people mm. from Europe have it as opposed to 
Asian countries. Mm -hmm. um, so, and we have uh, German heritage. So it, yeah, it removes um, radiation. If Lee from any people have radiation, it can often upset that gene and you just come back in sarcomas like popcorn all throughout your body. So Missy really needed a bone marrow transplant, but the it Leaframini is autosomonal, so it's passed down from one parent to, to the child. You have a 50-50% chance of passing it down. I'm one of three children. I was the only one that got it from my three, my two brothers and I. Yeah. And then I pass it down to two of my children. So my middle girl Freya has Leaframini syndrome and her eldest daughter Amelia didn't. And and like the luck of the gods, Amelia was a hundred percent match for Missy, and she didn't have Lee Fraumini. So we were able to proceed with Missy's bone marrow transplant using Amelia's bone marrow. And of course, having a bone marrow donor that's in the same country is amazing as well. There's so many more complications that come with the bone marrow being frozen mm. and sent from another country. As far as a financial burden that's very expensive and organizing all that from another country you know so Amelia went in and donated 1.2 liters of bone marrow from her hip bones mm -hmm. um on the in the morning in at the at the Queensland Children's Hospital that bone marrow was sent over to the Royal Brisbane Hospital they do weave their magic over there sent it back and it was infused into Missy at about 4 30 that afternoon so we were so lucky to have her and she was 100 percent match um, but then Missy's Missy's cancer treatment, her bone marrow transplant was fraught with so many catastrophic complications. It was just mind-boggling. And on day 30 of her treatment, I went across to the um, hospital behind the Queensland Children's Hospital. Oh, the name of it is just the Martyr, sorry, yeah. the Martyr Hospital, um, and had a double mastectomy had with a rebuild at the same time. That was an eight-hour operation because they'd found the Leafraumini gene. Even though my cancer was small and removed, they just wanted to, um, yeah, do that um, complete bilateral mastectomy. Um, and I was meant to stay in hospital for four or five days, but on the second day, I just charged myself. And I, I just, I remember saying to my surgeon, you know, look, I've got a sterile bone marrow transplant room, a hundred meters away, surrounded by nurses. I should be there. So and she agreed. She went yeah. off. You go. Just yeah. come back for your daily checkups. You know, and, and it's literally across the road. <laughs> literally, it's literally a hundred meters away. And once again, the incredible team, the Bomo Transplant CNC's clinical nurse consultants, they facilitated all of my surgeries and things, so I could be close to Missy. And I was just there, and I was very fortunate to have them on my team as well. So, uh, so I just went back, and then. That's where we are. I set out the rest of Missy's 70-day bone marrow transplant in that one room. Mm. You've left me speechless, which is less than ideal on a podcast <laughs> when you're hosting a podcast. Although I feel like I should just give the reins over to you today for this podcast and just let you do your own thing because this story is just phenomenal. Um, did you need any blood products during? No. No, all of my all of my cancers were, and it wasn't until we lost Missy that my intuition was just screaming at me. Even though I was just profoundly sad and grief stricken, I just had this urge to continue my Lee Farmini surveillance, is what they call it, 
And I went and had a colonoscopy and an endoscopy looking for throat, stomach cancers and bowel cancers. Mm -hmm. And that's where they found my bowel cancer, which was very, very early stages at the very sort of end of my large intestine in a place called your sigmoid. It's like a little S bend at the end. Um, And so when I went back to see my colorectal team, um, who I was passed on to from my breast cancer team at the MARTA, I insisted to them, let's do a complete hysterectomy while we're there. I had all my children. I was in my mid-40s. Let's have a hysterectomy. What a great idea. Let's do it in the same operation, radio. So I went ahead and had that um, bowel resection. They just removed the cancer and reconnected up my bowel. Um, But they did the hysterectomy first, a complete hysterectomy, um, ovaries and everything. And I (laughs) always remember the call I got from my um gynecological on- oncology team no it was, it was the fellow and she said Ange we we sat down to discuss your results and Dr Chetty pulled out your file first because you were just the dream hysterectomy everything went so beautifully you were like a star patient and he opened up the folder and pathology had found a sarcoma in your uterus <laughs> and I went I said I said I'm not surprised that doesn't surprise me at all but she said she couldn't believe it. So potentially I had three cancers all at the same time. And I would have been, if it wasn't for Missy presenting with that second cancer, myeloid dysplastic and us all getting genetically tested, I would have died because I would have been one of those people where it would have spread to my lungs and it would have been all through my bowel. It would have been just everywhere. And I most likely would have died too, which is what has happened to all my previous family members who didn't know they had Lee Fraumini. Um, and that gene hadn't even been found when a lot of them had passed away. They all passed away in the early 40s, my family. Um, so, yeah, that's, I just, yeah, I, you know, couldn't believe it. But they'd found that third cancer. I said, what do we need to do? She goes, well, well it's been removed and there's nothing else needed. So here I am, yeah, with three different cancers all just removed and no more cancer, need, no more treatment needed. So, um yeah that I could return to my grief after that (laughs) Missy's legacy has saved your life yeah right like and she goes on every single day through the incredible donors that she has recruited through her story yeah hundreds of lives and probably thousands of lives of people all over Australia every single year with the blood donations that are made to your lifeblood team yeah you know we have a a saying we have a saying at missy's donors where we're saving the lives of people whose names we will never know and whose faces we'll never see and that's so empowering people don't they don't understand people don't understand the empowering nature of donating until they've donated and once they do they're like oh my god you know that was painless and easy and simple and you know, and I always refer back to when Missy was in her bone marrow transplant, she started bleeding internally in her lungs. Had they have given her a coagulating drug intravenously through a port or, a, you know, cannula, um, that coagulating drug would have gone into her lungs, hardened the blood that was bleeding in there that she wouldn't be able to breathe. So she was going to die. We were sent down to ICU from our bone marrow transplant room and you know, everyone's like, oh, my God, Missy's, you know, it's not looking great. There's, and Dr. Fraser sat on the his computer and researched for four hours and he came up with this one idea that it had been done in a European country once before where he would turn that same drug into a gas through a nebulizer and irrigate the inside of her lungs 
through the nebulizer and we didn't think it would work. We were all in ICU and Missy, they were measuring her up for an ECMO. An ECMO mm -hmm. machine is a machine where they plug into your big femoral arteries inside your thigh and it, it's your, it becomes your heart and lung. And there's one staff member 24 hours a day running that machine and there's another staff member looking. Luckily, we didn't get to the ECMO, but they were measuring her up like that. That's how bad it was. So they gave her this gas and within three days, she was fine. But during that whole time, Missy's platelet numbers were in sing single digits and a healthy person's platelet numbers around 200 mark. So she, her platelet numbers were getting bloods done twice a day were five, two, none. So during that time, we had a two and a half week period where Missy was receiving one bag of platelets every six hours for two and a half weeks. And to make one bag of platelets, they need four people to donate whole blood so that that whole blood can be disseminated into its different parts, the platelets put together in a bag. So eight people needed to donate whole blood every day just for one little girl to keep fighting and stay alive. I, you know, that, that stat alone is amazing. It is. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's why I just will, ne I will never stop. No. I'll never stop advocating for blood donors and, yeah, hopefully never people does. don't understand how we feel. Hopefully they never get to the point where they see. The whole mission of this podcast is I and the blood donation advocacy work that I do is that I never want another parent or anyone who loves somebody, but particularly another parent, to be sitting in a hospital room and to wonder if there is enough blood in the supply. Yes, I used to, to wonder that. Yes. Marley yes. was her sickest during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic and between people not being able to donate because of COVID lockdowns, not being able to donate for a period of time after a COVID vaccine, there was critical blood shortages and there were times where we were transferred from Canberra to Sydney to have her treatment because it was easier to transfer the kid than it was the severely immunocompromised yes. process to transfer her from one hospital to another, as you would well know. Um, yeah. but because there just wasn't enough blood in the supply where she was to be able to have the intravenous immunoglobulin infusion that she was having. Yes. yes. Every yes. like it's yeah. gut wrenching to think what if it wasn't available? Yeah. What if, what if it just wasn't available? What would we do? Do what do we do? Do we well, just wait was, they don't pass away in that time? That's exactly you know? the cycle we were living in. We were could yeah. never look further than 10 days ahead. We were hopeful that the treatment that she would have would keep her with us for another 10 days. And we lived in that cycle for 19 months of the yeah. 10 days ahead, 10 days ahead. And every time we got another 10 days, it was the most incredible blessing for us to get another 10 days. Um, and that's how our journey started. And I want to talk to you about how you have worked through your mission with Mrs. Donors um, was that coming up to the first anniversary um, of us coming very close to losing her the first time. Um, I wanted to do something powerful and something positive. I didn't want it to be something that we were sad about. I She was still very, very sick at the time. And so I decided in the 100 day lead up to the first anniversary that I wanted to recruit 100 new blood donors. And to start with, it was just within the ACT. I just wanted our Canberra people, because there's only so many lasagnas people can drop at your front door, right? Like That's people, right. That's people right. things. But I was like, lasagna's great. 
feeding my family, amazing. But the only thing that's going to keep our child alive is these plasma infusions. It's literally the only thing that's keeping her earth side. So instead of a lasagna, go and do a blood donation. And it ended up going nuts because of the power of storytelling. And it became a truly national campaign. We recruited hundreds and hundreds of donors in the end. I don't, can't even remember now how many. It feels like so far back in our story. Um, and we had donors from every single state and territory in Australia, a truly national campaign. And those first-time donors have gone on to become lifetime blood donors yes. through the Milkshakes for Mali Lifeblood team. Yeah. Um, you also have a truly national campaign with Missy's donors <laughs> and her story touches people all over Australia. Um, tell me a little bit about that and what that means to your family, knowing that there's people all over Australia every day that sit down and do a blood donation inspired by your little girl. Yeah, I think I think when you lose a child, I think the parents of, of um, a child that's passed away, one of our biggest fears is that once they're gone, their name, no one speaks their name anymore. So having Missy's donors out there and every time it's said, you know, her little name's in there and that, that just fills my cup to no end but our our blood group was started by a dear friend of mine who did some research about how to help people with cancer and it came up with the incredible statistic that 34 percent of all blood donations made in Australia go directly to people fighting cancer and blood disorders like that's massive right like people think it's the person that's lost a leg in an accident in in the emergency department the emergency department uses three percent mm. and then the next biggest as you would know the next biggest need for blood is women having babies yeah. you know so that's our mothers and our sisters and our aunties and our our friends that need that as well so when missy's donors was started it was started because my friend didn't want to put her head in her pocket she didn't mm -hmm. want to give to a big charity because she wasn't sure how it was going to be spent whereas blood you know and i think the amazing thing about blood that i just find so amazing is that you can't synthesize blood you can't make blood Blood must come from one human to help another human. Yeah. So, yes. you know, when Missy's Donors was started and you tell you just let everyone know, it was amazing how many messages I got. What blood type is Missy? Can I direct, directly donate to her? I'm like, no, 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 it just goes in the pool for everyone, but we always need it. You know? <laughs> That's so cute. I love how people think. We need to come up with like a cut and paste message that we can reply to those messages to our beautiful donors with because I've never come up with one that I would get so messages my brother donated blood in Perth yesterday. How do we make sure that it gets into Mali? You know? Yes, I told them to send it directly yes. to you, Missy, at Just... the Queensland Children's Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a great relationship with Lifeblood. We just get on the phone. Just say, just blah, blah, blah. It's fine. <laughs> grew from there you know everyone was so passionate and Missy loved Missy would do lots of public speaking Missy did lots of public speaking and we did lots for other charities she was the face of Daffodil Day nationally in 2019 she was on the Woolworths you know token things we did everything we could um for everyone we could um because she just loved helping out too and she loved giving back they loved giving people love meeting her at the donor center you know yeah. we used to go and visit people you know she did favorite thing to do a walk of the donor floor with marley and yeah, campbell i and love going has become i love going to the donor center i love it <laughs> Campbell has become a very passionate blood donation advocate and at the age of 10 is well unimpressed that he can't donate blood. But he um, <clears throat> will just walk the donor floor and just say, yes. 
this is my sister Marley because you're donating blood today is the reason that she's still alive. Yeah. She just drops it in the donor centre. That's just gold. What's the – and gold. he's autistic as well, so he does just drop it like that in the donor But watch centre. them melt away and donate forever now. You know, <laughs> There's like nothing it's... more powerful. Like there's nothing more powerful. You know, thank you for keeping my little sister alive. Yes. You know. Yes, yes. It's it's such an empowering thing. And, you know, for all those people that can't donate, they are some of our best advocates. They're out there finding people to donate for them or they wear their shirts or they yes. you know, they, they get out there and, and, and get people in the donor chair for us because they can't donate. And that's mm. me. You know, yeah. I can't donate. So I make mm. everyone else do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I say that all the time, you know, if you would like to be able to donate or you're not eligible for some reason, share an episode of our podcast with a friend or share one of our social media posts. I need to take some advice from you because your calls to action within your socials, you know, Missy's Mondays and all of those things are <laughs> so clear and so direct that awesome. it's like, right, now this is what's going to happen. You don't have to listen to the whole story. Download the app. Book Get in there. <laughs> Save some done. lives. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's good to know. That's good to it's know. Great. It's so clear and it's so direct. So I'll share yeah. some of your content through our socials as well because you make it so easy and so direct for people to be able to just get it done and I love the way oh, thank you that's great that's good to know because sometimes you feel you know you know there's ebbs and flows in your energy and the amount of the amount to give oh, out and, yeah so sometimes when you're in a bit of an ebb and you and you think wow is anyone really listening and or you know but then you realize that they are and you just get yeah. back on that bandwagon and Absolutely. get back on the way <laughs> all right let's talk about some of missy's final days and towards the end yeah you're comfortable we don't have to do it yeah yeah no no no, i think it's i think it's really quite interesting i find death interesting in a way because i have um been by my family's side uh, several of them when they have died i cared for my own father when he i was at grade 11 and 12 i was his carer he was 42 when he died and he passed away three months after I finished high school and I was holding his hand when he took his last breath. There's something really empowering about being there with someone that you love when they pass away. It's a gift. It's a gift. It was a gift for me. And I can't imagine having to die alone or without someone there just being with you. I don't believe death is the end. Um I'm not a religious person, but I just don't believe that it's the end. And I think that there's a really awesome place, hopefully, that you go, <laughs> your spirit near it, your soul goes. But Missy didn't, when Missy's transplant failed, um, yeah, and I still remember the day vividly when Dr. Chris Fraser pulled me into his office and said that it took us six weeks to diagnose these new cells. No one could recognise them and, and samples were sent overseas and no one, because Missy's third cancer was so rare there was zero treatment options. It had a three-month lifespan from diagnosis and it often occurred in men over the age of 65. So there was, and I just couldn't believe it. I remember sitting like at home thinking, so there's no treatment options, you know, and no. And I just went, well, that can't be right because there's always options, right? No, there's just no options. And there's, there's nothing we can do about this one. There's no, but he kept trying. He kept giving her the lymphocytes that we had taken from Amelia again. Lymphocytes and stem cells are two different types of bone marrow products other than actual bone marrow. 
and Amelia, Missy's sister Amelia went on to donate those other two types, you know, afterwards because you can't use the same bone marrow from the same donor. It's just like reinstalling a program that you already know doesn't work. So we tried different things. Um, but Missy was really quite well. She was frail, but she went to school a couple of days and she, when we were home and we'd go back once sort of every four weeks to see Chris, which was really only twice when you look at it in the scheme of things. But when she became really unwell, we were at the Cairns based hospital and I said to Chris, you know, cause um, the Cairns based hospital being a smaller hospital, as you know, I was the, I was the one with the most knowledge there about Missy's condition. And I told them what they needed to do. And, um, because I just don't deal with that many cancer patients because they all go to Brisbane. So I said to Chris, I, you know, I don't want her to die here. No one knows her. You know, the room we we're in didn't have a window. Um, so we were flown back. We didn't know she was so close anyway, but we were flown back to Brisbane and we got to the hospital. We were in her favourite room, room four, where she had a bone marrow transplant that overlooks the beautiful South Bank and, and the Brisbane River. And she was still getting up, going, taking herself to the toilet. And but you could tell her hair was all crispy and crunchy. She was so pale and her eyes had sort of started to droop a little. And I thought, wow, you know, we're really not close to the end. I didn't think it was that quickly. So we rang my husband and her sisters and they flew up. But unfortunately, she she didn't know. So she didn't know she had this third cancer. She just thought that her second cancer had relapsed myelodysplastic and that we were just going to have to have another bone marrow transplant. But, you know, it's a real, it's, it was hard to decide whether or not we tell her. I mean, do you tell a 13-year-old girl that she's dying, even though that she's as worldly as she is and, and mature as she is or having fought so hard for the last four years and missed out on so many things that all her friends take for granted normal life? And being so profoundly unwell and in pain, um, do we tell her? So my husband and I made the decision not to tell her. We didn't tell her sisters. We didn't tell anyone because the minute someone finds out their terminal, their total demeanour changes. And I even had to pull a couple of the nurses up. I'm like, stop being so nice. She'll she'll see through you. And like, oh, okay, sorry, yes, we'll stop being so nice because, I mean, obviously they knew. Um that she wasn't going to make it so and we were just in her room and one morning she sort of was very incoherent didn't sort of wake up properly and I remember sitting her getting the nurses to help me sit her in the armchair in the room so the sun could be on her through the window and even her eyes were closed she was still feeling the warmth of the sun and, and seeing that view <laughs> and then uh, we just popped her back in a bed and about 36 hours later she passed away, but unfortunately she was already um, unconscious when her sisters and dad arrived lying in the bed. So we got to spend a little bit of time with her and we stayed with her. And fortunately, again, fortunately, she passed away at 7.48 in the morning and both Rob and I, my husband and I, were holding her hands as she took her last three big breaths and passed away and it was such a gift to be with her if she could have passed away during the night we wouldn't have known we would have just woken up and she was gone you know but we uh we were holding her hands and she was surrounded by love and the nurses that we got to choose her nurses who would be looking after her and the two nurses that looked after her 
on the 12 hour shift the last two days she died were looking after her when she was nine and she was first diagnosed so we love our nurses profoundly at the Queensland Children's Hospital and we've made some really wonderful friends and they've been so important in getting strong off the ground and helping me and supporting me on the inside you know my little inside training nurses <laughs> but just having Missy having her we're both help so many people die alone and when you're a child and you're losing your life you know it's just so unfair but to be surrounded by so much love your mummy and your daddy there holding your hands and just being there with you when you pass away it was so beautiful it was so beautiful I never would want it to happen but if it had to happen it couldn't have been more perfect if she tried and she didn't know she was dying in her mind the last time the last thought she would have had was of her tomorrow and I think that is one of the greatest gifts we could ever have given her as a parent is for her just to believe that there was a tomorrow and her legacy yeah how many people are donating blood now to give other Australians a tomorrow yes and the work continue to do in her honor yeah yeah I'm so fortunate to have that purpose you know because being the mother of a child that you lost I wonder what they do what parents do that don't have purpose because purpose is an amazing alarm clock and sometimes you need so much purpose to swing your legs out of your bed in the morning because it would be very easy just to stay there and be in complete misery Mm -hmm. um, and a profound state of grief forever that is a choice it's all a choice and it's all a choice not every day I can swing my legs out of the bed and keep going but as we move further on from having lost Missy it is getting a nanosecond easier each day but uh, you'll never be the same again after you've lost a child but I have so much purpose I have my beautiful Lammy I have a community both the strong mom community and the Missy's donors community and the Lammy community you know so much love and it's just it's so motivating and it fills Mm -hmm. my cup and just yeah, I can't do enough. I just love it. Love advocating for blood donors, you know. So let's finish the episode off by talking about some of the incredible things that I've managed to find on socials of the way that people continue to honour Missy's memory and continue to support you guys. Um, let's talk about Missy's donor wheelies. But this is my Tell me about this. Missy's two best friends, one best friend Missy's had since she was 18 months old, Kobe, they were just the bestest of friends and he's the eldest of three boys and all three boys are amazing, kind humans and, of course, they're in grade 11 now. Um, Kobe and Missy's other best friend, Flinny, because um, Missy loved the boys because they were there was no drama. Yeah. There was no drama with the boys. Most of her friends were boys. She had some lovely girlfriends as well, but and because she was really clever, and these other boys are really clever. Um, she just, they were her friends because they all loved going to school and loved achieving and loved leaning in. So these two boys with Kobe's uncle, 
decided that they would push a wheelbarrow 140 kilometers from Mariba to Chiligo in the Great Wheelbarrow Race. That's <laughs> amazing. And Kobe is an extreme, they're both extreme sportsmen, these two boys. And Kobe plays, he's top level cricketer. He'd like to be an Australian yeah. cricketer. And he said that they wear budgie smugglers when they're out on the, or when they're playing cricket, because they're often pulling their pants down to fix all the padding and stuff yeah. or changing. So he said, why don't we get some Missy's Donors budgie smugglers? That's awesome. <laughs> So we ordered those. We got quite a few pairs made, and we've sold quite a few pairs. And I thought the the boys are all such show ponies. I thought <laughs> you know maybe they can just wear them, you know. But they they did cover up a little bit for the middle of the day in the hottest part. One of them wore the budgie smugglers, ran just in his budgie budgie smugglers for 140 kilometers. I hope he wasn't. No there was no chafing. How <laughs> <laughs> was there no chafing? Honestly. But that the the image of those three boys running in their budgies will yep. resonate across the land of time with the the great wheelbarrow race. It was their twentieth anniversary this year, and we yep. managed to raise you know twenty thousand dollars. It was amazing. Kobe's both Kobe and Flynn's mums, um, Kim and Beck, were amazing and um, helped me did a lot of things as well because it takes a whole support team. You got to drive a vehicle along beside them, and they swap out of the vehicle every minute, run for yep. a minute and rotate round um but they ran in those bungee smugglers <laughs> that is so cool they all got out and ran in together in their budgies um it was delightful for a lot of people to see <laughs> it's that incredible joy and imprint that missy's leaving on the world yeah. as well and i just adore that um and flynn as well you touched on before um missy's best friend um, tell me about the rally car stuff that he's doing with the Missy's Donor banner. Well, Flinny, Flinny Race is a thing called Carnacross where it's all just different divisions and you just sort of try and beat your own time so you're not racing against other cars. Mm. And my husband's um, business, he's a landscaper. He does a lot of commercial industrial landscaping. We sponsored yeah. Flinny, gave him some money to help him buy tyres and fix things and and he spray painted his whole car and then my husband Rob got the, all the stickers made up and got the big Missy's Donors sticker on the top. Yeah. Um, yeah, he loves it. He always wears his shirt his shirt out at races. Yeah. Um, all the kids at school, anyone that's in a team that's red for their sports, they all have Missy's Donors T-shirts and they all sports day. The whole town is filled with Missy's Donors shirts. <laughs> if they're in the red team, that's the red shirt that they wear. Yeah. Um, but- Flinny, yeah, Flinny and Kobe just, they've got a this strong dad shirt, they've got a this strong human shirt. They wear them all the time in honour of Missy. It's amazing. They're amazing young men. Yeah, just amazing. And that's where we will end the episode is with that incredible spirit and that incredible imprint that Missy has left on the world because I really, really appreciate you going to the places that you did during this episode and sharing her journey um, and the incredible impact that blood donors had on her treatment and her journey. Um, But what I love about your story is the incredible legacy that she continues to leave on the world and the incredible imprint that she leaves. And that's the way that I'm sure that you would want people to remember her, not when she was going through her treatment and all of those types of things so that people get to continue to live the life for her that she should have had. Yes. If yes. she was not forever. I've said it more perfectly. That's exactly what we want. 
Can we just close the episode out with a final message from you um, for the blood donors that made all of that blood product available for Missy? Um, and I guess Missy's team donors and anyone that's considering a donation in the future. Uh, I just want them to make sure that they know how important every single donation they make is. Mm -hmm. um, and I, we could seriously just could not have done it physically without the blood that they were donating, but without the love and compassion and the community that they have built collectively, um, giving us the inertia and love and compassion that we needed, that she needed as a young lady fighting all her cancers. Mm. You know, we couldn't have done it without them. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, Anne. Thank you so much for asking. Missy's story is one that we featured in the upcoming Milkshakes for Mali book. Um, and there's always plenty of my chat with guests that don't make it to the final cut of the podcast episodes. Um, but in the book, you will hear those different aspects that don't make it into the podcast episodes and just some different bits and pieces to the stories of these incredible people and their families and their loved ones that don't necessarily fit within the podcast format, but definitely make up the framework for the incredible tales um, of Aussie survival. And when I say survival, that could be surviving for an extra day. It could be surviving for an extra week or a year. Um, it could be improved quality of life. Um, and the book covers that full spectrum as does this podcast. Pre-orders will be available from late October for delivery well before Christmas. So please consider gifting a copy to one in three of the people that you buy a Christmas gift for this year to reflect the one in three Aussies who will be dependent on Australian blood donors in their lifetime. And if you would like to become a donor in the future, please register your donation to the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood team or Missy's donors. I actually really don't care who people donate blood for. It's just a really beautiful way to be able to track our donors and our new donors and to be able to measure the Australian lives that we've all saved together as part of the Milkshakes for Marley community. This podcast was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. I'm also your executive producer. Today's guest was Anne, the strong mum, Lifeblood team champion for Missy's donors, mother and soulmate to Missy, who will be forever 13. Audio production and welcome to country by my amazing husband, Jeff Fisher, and social media assets by Jason at Strusky Media. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend and make sure you are following me on Instagram and Facebook. Um to get additional content, um, additional updates. There's often people that we chat to or that want to share their stories that don't want to do it in podcast format. So there's some of that short form sharing that happens, particularly on Instagram through our stories and our reels. Um, and there's always additional information as well at milkshakesformarley.org. So it's M-A-R-L-E-I-G-H and F-O-R rather than the number four. And as always, I'll leave the final word to Marley. Thank you for my prisma.